This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, September the 1st, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I don't hear any horns, but you know what? We can go nonetheless. Boop, 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 boop. See, that's how we hit the Daves and go. Coming up on the show today, we have our weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. Today, we discuss Elizabeth May, who is once again running for Green Party leadership, but old is new again. We also consider the proposed National Mental Health Crisis Line. And we contemplate why people are having trouble sinking their teeth into provincial elections. I'm noticing a lack of enthusiasm during the Quebec election thus far. Anecdotal evidence, I know. In the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely looks ahead to this year's Toronto International Film Festival. And then we'll be joined by Greg David. We need Greg because so much is changing around AMI-TV and AMI-audio that this new fall lineup needs a deeper dive. And Greg has all the details. He's going to get us straight. And that way I will not be confused by any of the branding. But let's begin the show with a top story of the day. We shared this to you as it was breaking news yesterday on the show. Health Canada has approved the first Omicron-specific vaccine for COVID. Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Shapriya Sharma says the She expects submissions from Pfizer and Moderna for even more updated vaccines in the next two weeks as new subvariants circulates. Dr. Sharma discussed how this vaccine is another public health tool. So I'm actually not sure if uh, you're hearing that audio. I am not hearing that audio. So you know what? Let's not worry about sound right now because I don't know if it's coming back down my ears right now as we continue to play some musical chairs here and try to figure out exactly how we're executing now with Dave Brown across across some split platforms and split boards. Some stuff is going to uh, fire a little weird here as we go forward. So I don't know if you heard that sound. I sure didn't. So we're going to go with this assumption. If I didn't hear it, you didn't hear it. Now, uh, in that press conference yesterday, Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos also said deliveries of Moderna's new shot are expected to begin arriving before the end of next week, and some provinces may get their rollout going by as early as next week. The carbon tax proved to be a testy issue as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met with Manitoba Premier Heather Stevenson yesterday. Stevenson had laid out the reality that the back and forth of being taxed for the carbon and then receiving rebates wasn't doing any favors to the people of Manitoba. She mentioned the uh, back and forth meant the money wasn't in their pockets when they needed it. Justin Trudeau fired back with the fact that most people, the average family in Manitoba, was receiving more in rebates than they were actually being charged on a carbon tax. The Atlantic premiers have called for a meeting with the federal environment minister and more time to submit their carbon pricing plans to Ottawa. We also had some news coming out of the BC wildfire service yesterday. Forest Minister Katrina Conroy says it's been a below average year for wildfires in the province since the, since the beginning of April. Wildfires and area burned have ranked so below August, the 20 year average. Hey, we got some sound. Let's hear from BC Forest Minister Katrina Conroy. So as of August 31st, there were 182 active wildfires burning across the province. 
There is currently only one wildfire of note, that's the Fat Dog Creek Fire in Manning Park and within the Coastal Fire Centre. Uh, since April 1st, there have been 1,355 wildfires across BC. BC wildfire analyst Neil McLaughlin explains there are conditions that are still a cause for concern. For at least a third time in the past 12 years, many of the 150,000 residents of Mississippi's capital city oh, are oh, standing yeah, in line let's, for let's, water. Let's, let's, stop, let's stop the sound. Let's stop the sound. So yeah, we're, we're dealing with a couple issues uh, behind the scenes today, a couple gremlins running around. That's a story a little bit further down the trough, but let me set that up and then we can play that audio again. So just, just FYI, the, the conditions that the BC wildfire representative Neil McLaughlin was discussing was the Pacific Ocean temperature is still three to five degrees higher than its annual average. So they are concerned about a drier September, which still means there is a possibility of some wildfire risks. McLaughlin also laid out that 75% of BC wildfires were caused by lightning this season. So you just heard a little bit of Tim McGuire there before. Let me tell you what Tim McGuire was actually talking about. We've been sharing stories about some of the water woes in Mississippi all week long after some water treatment plants were flooded due to significant rainstorms. Portable toilets are once again outside the state capitol building in Jackson, Mississippi, as the city struggles to keep their neglected water system in operation. Tim McGuire explains some of the history. For at least a third time in the past 12 years, many of the 150,000 residents of Mississippi's capital city are standing in line for water, some arriving at pumper trucks with empty paint cans and 55-gallon trash cans to bring water back to their homes. Resident Shirley Harrington likens conditions to a third-world country. I've been in places where there is rationing of water, not just on some superficial crisis basis, but it's a normal way of life but not in the United States. This should not be happening. The city has deferred major maintenance and improvements for some 40 years, while the state fails to provide enough funding for such projects. Some federal infrastructure funding is expected. The state legislature earlier this year passed a massive tax cut totaling hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm Tim McGuire. And I want to play a little more sound from the world of American politics from yesterday. U.S. President Joe Biden gave what I'd call an interesting speech last night. Now, I'm not playing these clips as an endorsement, but I want you to hear them before I share a few thoughts that I have. So let's start with the president sounding the alarm about the state of American democracy. For a long time, we've told ourselves that American democracy is guaranteed, but it's not. We have to defend it, protect it, stand up for it, each and every one of us. That's why tonight I'm asking our nation to come together, unite behind the single purpose of defending our democracy regardless of your ideology. Biden elaborated on the importance of the moment. Buffering. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. There's one more clip I want to play from that speech, but I just want to make sure we're playing the right one because we jumped ahead there a little bit. But if you go below the one you just played, let's listen a little bit further on President Biden elaborating on what he means by Donald Trump and the MAGA threat. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence. 
So I mentioned to you I've got a couple thoughts and comments on this. I don't necessarily disagree with the overall premise the United States president is laying out there. I am someone who does believe some institutions in regard to democracy are certainly under attack. What I disagree with is perhaps his tone and rhetoric there. When you hear him use the words stand up and fight, that's like a teensy bit too close to some of the rhetoric we heard ahead of January 6th. Again, I'm not dismissing the importance of the moment or the significance of institutional threat against democracy. Just as I listen to those words, if those words had come out of the mouth of former President Donald Trump, people on a certain political spectrum would be up in arms, saying you're fanning the flames, you're divisive, you're really messing with the, the, the polarization that we're seeing in our society. It makes me uncomfortable. It just, it just, there's something about that speech last night that I understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to rile up the base, but that's the exact problem. We shouldn't just be riling bases here. We're talking about some breakdowns in ideology. And the fact is some people do not care. They think the system and the institutions don't work, period. And I'm here for electoral reform on this side of the border, on that side of the border. I think that we can certainly make our democracy more robust and improve it. But using rhetoric like stand up and fight like hell for our democracy. I mean, I think we're maybe drifting a little bit the, the wrong way. Just because you might support someone's particular ideology doesn't mean that kind of rhetoric is appropriate. Okay, so while I've said something controversial on that front, let's get to our daily polls. Yesterday, we asked you at Accessible Media on Twitter or Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, have you had a mentor in your life or career? 12% of you said yes, 88% of you said no. And that was something that came up in our discussion with uh, one of the researchers from Mentoring Canada, that not enough people are having opportunities to be mentored, and there's certainly value in it. So that's worth following up on. 88% of you saying no, that you've not had a mentor in your life or career. Today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter and Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Have you been waiting for an Omicron-specific vaccine before taking a second COVID-19 booster? Yes, no, or I'm not getting boosted. Eliza, I know you're probably having a very difficult 10 minutes on that side of the glass, but I'm curious if you have a thought on this question. Oh, Dave, I am having a great time this morning. Um, but... The expression Grace used to use is I'm going to throw hands with these machines. I might throw some hands as well. It's it's been it's been a time, Dave. <laughs> um, regarding this daily poll, I haven't been waiting per se. It's more of me forgetting <laughs> to yeah. uh, to get that booster. But with this added protection, it definitely I think is going to um, help my brain not forget because it does. With the people I personally know getting COVID right now, it is that variant. It is mm -hmm. the Omicron variant, mm -hmm. and I want to protect myself the best way possible. And to me, that means getting this latest vaccine with all the new bells and whistles. So I will <laughs> definitely, definitely be getting this one as soon as possible. Writing it down somewhere also so yeah, I don't yeah. forget. <laughs> Making an appointment always helps. Yep. And I should mention here for the sake of uh, scientific transparency, this particular Omicron-targeted vaccine isn't necessarily directly designed for some of the sub-variants that are dominant yep. right now, but it's still used as the baseline Omicron variant protection. I will tell you, Eliza, I'm in the camp where I got my third shot in January, late January, so I was eligible 
eligible for my my fourth shot. I want to say it was mid-July or so that the dates allowed me to be lined up for my fourth shot. And there was already rumors about these uh, amended vaccines being submitted to regulators in the United States and into Canada. And basically within a few days of those rumors, those became full-blown reports. The, the paperwork went through. It was official. Those vaccines had been sent to Health Canada and the, uh, the FTC in the United States. So that at the FDA in the United States. So at that point I was like, you know what? I'm going to wait this out. I'm going to wait till there's a more targeted fourth shot. Cause if I'd gotten my fourth shot in July, then I probably would have had to wait till November or December for my next shot. And I said, you know what? Let's wait till the fall. We'll see if this thing gets approved. And the rule that I laid out for myself was October 1st. If there was no movement by October 1st, your boy was going to get his fourth shot. That was going to be that ahead of the flu season and ahead of those other seasons. But now that this thing is uh, approved by Health Canada and allegedly going to be rolling out in the next week or two, I'll uh, once again play the vaccine hunger games and try to get myself an appointment. I'm right there with you, Dave. Let's bring in Mike Ross for his thoughts on this one. Mike, what do you think about this daily poll? Am on medical advice, waiting for the uh, the the next like this booster with the Omicron uh, variant sort of kicked into it, um, only because the the, the logic being, um, you know, you 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 get some safety um, uh, issues with say first generations of things, and as you improve them, then guess what? You know, when you buy the third or fourth generation of something, it is often safer they've run more tests they've made more adjustments and so that that was the the logic behind this was if you get a booster of the last similar to the last one you had you will get the same coverage you had but there was no omicron uh, protection in that so they said listen as long as you're being smart you're masking up you're you're avoiding uh, you know certain uh, situations crowded situations things like that then just hold on Get the next uh, version of the vaccine, and that way your protection is even that much better. So, you know, I've maintained my testing. I just tested myself yesterday. I've got another test base uh, book next week, uh, and 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 I'm just keep doing what I'm doing, being smart about it. And once I can book an appointment for that uh, new booster, that's what I want to get. Yeah, let the Hunger Games begin yet again. Mike, thank you for mm. this. That is thank Mike you, Ross. Dave. We'll talk to him a little bit later in the show for the big business story of the day and the regional news update. But in the meantime, you can vote on Twitter at Accessible Media or you can vote on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. You know what you can do? You can vote twice. Go to each one, vote twice. Really have your voice be heard. Let's go back to Eliza Rocco for the National Weather Updates. I think oh, we're just. I think we're yes. just going. I think we're just going acapella today, yes, Liza. Yes, we are I think going acapella. Let's, let's work on the assumption that we get no music or sound the rest of the all show. All right, all right. You're welcome to sing in the background if you'd like, Dave. <laughs> no, maybe that might be distracting. <laughs> A little bit. So we're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there are showers ending this afternoon, then a mix of sun and cloud with 60% chance of showers, a risk of a thunderstorm this morning, and a high of 25 degrees. Next up is Halifax, where it is sunny with a high of 24 degrees. And then in Montreal, it is also sunny with a high of 26 degrees. And in Ottawa, it's a mix of sun and cloud with a high of 26 degrees. And in Toronto, it is also mainly sunny with a high of 28 degrees. In Thunder Bay, it's a mix of sun and cloud with 60% chance of showers this afternoon with a risk of a thunderstorm. It will clear later this afternoon. Uh, there is a high of 30 degrees.
and in Winnipeg. It is sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 22 degrees. In Saskatoon, it's sunny with a high of 26 degrees. And in Calgary, it is also sunny with a heat warning in effect and a high of 30 degrees. And in Edmonton, it's sunny with another heat warning in effect and a high of 32 degrees. In Yellowknife, it's clearing early this morning with a high of 18 degrees. And in Vancouver, BC, it is also sunny with a high of 26 degrees. And in Vic Victoria, BC, it is sunny with a high of 25 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much. Eliza, coming up next, we kick off the weekly news panel. Joita's down the hall. Michelle's in her spot. And we'll discuss Elizabeth May, who once again finds herself running for Green Party leadership. What's old is new again on this Friday edition of Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, which means it's news panel time. Michelle and Joita are standing by, but Joita standing by in a new spot this week down the hall in Studio One. Joita Gupta, good morning. Hello, Joita. <laughs> good morning, Dave. There we go. There now we we've go. got Joita. Your boy was about to storm out. Your boy was about to storm out and call it a day. Uh, and we also heard Michelle laughing there. Good morning, Michelle McQuig. Good morning. I was going to say we're never free from tech gremlins, are we? No, they are <laughs> omnipresent. Uh, guys, let's jump right into our first topic. Former federal Green Party leader Elizabeth May is once again running for leader of the party. With a twist, she's running alongside former human rights worker Jonathan Pidno. The six candidates vying to lead the party were released this past Wednesday, including one other joint slate and two standalone candidates. Joita, this political story caught your attention. Why? Um, I'm pretty sure when Elizabeth May stepped down in 2019, she said she was never, ever going to run again. No, she was done. Thank you very much. It was time for somebody else to take over. And yet here she is running again. We know the Green Party has had, uh, forgive the understatement, a little bit of chaos in the last, uh, in the aftermath of the last federal election. So I would be very curious to see uh, whether any other candidate even stands a chance. And I wonder to myself, what does this mean for the, uh, for the Green Party of Canada when it feels like we're really talking about the Elizabeth May cult of personality, besides which this whole idea of co-leadership, well, I'm really intrigued by it because um, in theory it seems like it might be very promising, but I don't know if it'll really play out. Juita, I'm going to bounce the ball right back to you here because lay out a little bit about what they're trying to do here enshrining co-leadership as seemingly a tenet of the party. Well, they're not quite there yet. Uh, what Elizabeth May and her running mate have promised is that if either one of them is elected as party leader, then the other person would be deputy leader. And then they would work to enshrine co-leadership into the party's constitution. So first they'll get elected and then they'll try and push through the change. They've said that other Green parties around the world have embraced co-leadership as a way to share responsibilities and to bring in different skill sets that complement one another. So it's an idea that is experimental, that uh, there's some 
eagerness to try, but like I said, it remains to be seen whether they'll actually implement the changes uh, that are being proposed and how it'll actually play out in practice. Well, we'll have to, t- you know, we'll have to take, you know, wait and see, as they say. For a party that just had a civil war, I find the idea <laughs> that like doing this joint leadership thing may not be the uh, may not be the wisest decision. Hey, let's do more splitting down the middle of our party and see if we can get more camps going. Uh, Michelle, before we jump into the joint party side of this, uh, your reaction to Elizabeth May once again throwing her hat in this ring. Yeah, I, I, I seem to recall the same kind of sound bites as Joita, but I actually remember on election night uh, watching the coverage and hearing Elizabeth May go into more of an attack mode against Enemy Paul than I had seen her do up until that point. And I remember thinking, I wonder if some ground is being laid here for some kind of quote unquote comeback. Uh, So I can't say I was super shocked, but it definitely is an interesting development, and I'll be interested to see how that goes, because like you said, the the party's messaging currently is all about renewal, but reinstating the previous owner, if that's in fact owner, leader, pardon me, um, would seem to sort of undermine that messaging, uh, despite the presence of a a new and much younger person on the ballot, that Jonathan Pinot is like 32, 33, something like that. But it's uh, it, it's an unusual kind of move and one that I'll be interested to see if you can get your head around. The one argument she does make that does hold a bit of sway is that the party leader could potentially have a little bit more impact if they have a seat in the House of Commons. And of mm. course, Elizabeth May currently is one of the only two Greens in the House. And that's been the case for a long, long time. Uh, Joey, yeah. you, you have to forgive me. With so much going on today, my, my, my ears are not working all the way properly. But I think you used the word cult of personality. I, maybe your tongue was a little bit in your cheek there. But I don't think you're all the way off in that assumption that the federal Green Party in Canada is Elizabeth May, and Elizabeth May is the federal Green Party. You took the words from my mouth, Dave. We are sharing a brain, and that's one of the reasons why I'm a little concerned about this. If you'll allow me to indulge in a bit of abstraction, what is good leadership? (laughs) If if you'll allow me later in the show, uh, which I fully (laughs) plan to go abstract, then yes, I will allow you here. Uh, Let's ask ourselves a philosophical question. What is good leadership? To my mind, good leadership is setting up a situation where you plan for a successor where it doesn't just come down to Elizabeth May is the Green Party and the Green Party is Elizabeth May. We know that one of the two seats that the Green Party now has is a fluke out in Kitchener because uh, the Liberal candidate ended up bailing at the last minute. And, you know, so that's how the Greens ended up getting that second seat. But for a long time, Elizabeth May has been the most prominent and enduring presence for the Green Party. She's been leader for about 13 years. And despite the longevity of her term as leader, she had not really done a lot of succession planning, as I think became evident with what happened with Annamie Paul um, and a lot of the chaos that stemmed from that. That's not good leadership. That is a real flaw in a leader who does not put in place adequate succession planning. Uh, The other thing to bear in mind is that Elizabeth May has gone on public record and said um, that she has made mistakes, but, and Michelle can correct me if I've, if I miss something, but I haven't actually heard a peep about what those mistakes are and how she actually intends to rectify them. So all of this is... You're not missing anything. Yeah, all of these things are putting up a lot of red flags for me where it almost seems like with Elizabeth May running, she's going to eclipse other candidates. It really feels like it's a foregone conclusion. But I would really wonder if it's in the best interest of the Green Party to be sticking with the tried, interested, trusted, and tested Elizabeth May. 
I, I, I will still go on record and say the party certainly did enemy Paul dirty. Like, they absolutely pulled the rug out from under her. I will say she didn't help herself in some of her media statements and some of her presence with the media following the rug being pulled out from under her. But, yeah, they, they, they did enemy Paul real dirty. And it does seem like we're just sort of trying to reset here, which then makes me think, Michelle, the future of the Green Party, the, the relevance of the party as the Liberals and the NDP have certainly shifted their environmental policy over the course of the last te- decade or so. Even some conservative leadership hopefuls are sort of okay or somewhat tolerant of the idea of a carbon tax or at least cap and trade. What kind of space does that leave for the actual party? Yeah, it's that kind of is the question of the day. And that's where I think a lot of the leadership conversation is going to focus because there were some really interesting trends that emerged when you're looking at the vote numbers from the last election. Um, Various parties made gains. The People's Party made gains, for instance. But the Green Party bled support, and it seems to have gone every which way. They were sort of a bigger... You know, they went from being the party with the environmental party, the one who was always going to push the environment as the top priority item, to losing a bit of that focus, I think. And people who might have flocked to the Greens as a bit of an alternative, uh, I think, got a little confused along the way as to where exactly they stand and what they stand for. Now, given the increasing uh, pressingness and importance of the climate emergency, maybe there is still a space for the Green Party in that conversation to to push for f- further action. But that's where it gets a bit tricky because you you are talking about a party with two seats in the House, so their their sway is limited there. Um, I really think that it's going to be the central question that the leadership candidates have to wrestle with is carving out a cohesive vision that has some appeal and can try to gain back some of that ground. Um, really quickly on the on the subject of the leadership itself, I do find it interesting that despite the sort of reemergence of Elizabeth May and her her longtime sort of leadership of the party, we still have four, if you, you know, three to, to four, depending on how you want to look at it, other people vying for the leadership. You can't possibly tell me that there weren't rumors circulating within green circles that Elizabeth May was going to make a comeback. And yet we still have a fairly robust slate of candidates uh, who are keen to take a run at the leadership. So that, to me, speaks a little bit to some of the schisms that might still remain as right. well. That there's, I just wanted to close the book on that. Yeah, that there, that there certainly is a vacuum inside this party right now in regards to where they want it to be because that was part of, that was part of the beef with the enemy, Paul. They, they were trying to figure out just how progressive they wanted to be, and they walked right into an Israel-Palestine mm-hmm. debate. Like, they walked right into it, and then they had a miserable time. And then, of course, there was the fighting of, of the liberals uh, luring over one of their, one of their elected officials. It, it was it was a whole political thing, but they fell right into the trap and the grenades went everywhere. Joita, this is where I end the conversation, handing things back to you. What do you think about the relevance and future of this party based on the current political landscape? Well, as you mentioned earlier, a number of parties have adopted positions that are friendlier to the environment. Nonetheless, there is a deepening environmental crisis and climate change is as always a tremendous problem. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that the party is entirely irrelevant. There is, I think, still a need for a party or a voice in Canadian politics that takes an uncompromising stand on the environment that isn't about making deals and trying to find the middle road, but that comes down and says we really need to prioritize the environment, we need to prioritize the climate now. One of the things that's been really interesting to observe, Dave, has been uh, the really impassioned engagement on the question of climate change particularly, but the environment generally, 
when it comes to the youth, not just in Canada, but around the world, but certainly here in mm-hmm. Canada, we've seen a lot of youth activism related to the climate. And yet those young leaders or those young climate activists do not appear to be plugging into the Green Party. Mm-hmm. And that is something that makes me wonder if they're really resonating, if the 68-year-old Elizabeth May is really resonating with younger climate activists. Uh, the other thing I'll say on the point about leadership is I think it's just going to confuse voters in the next election. They'll be wondering who's in charge of this if you have two people running the show at the Green Party. So, you know, I think there's still a place for the Green Party here, especially if they stay away from uh, things like foreign policy. As you, again, identified the Israel-Palestine conflict, they walk right into that one. That's how they're getting into trouble when they move away from what is their mandate, which is to advocate for the environment and start to get into other issues that are not directly related to their core mission and mandate. So I think as long as the Green Party stays committed to its central vision of promoting uh, climate, of talking about the environment, and they stay out of everybody else's lane when it comes to other issues, they may still remain relevant. But I think they become mired in controversy and get into a heap of trouble when they deviate from the environment and talk about other things. Mm, That's well put. Well said, guys. Thank you for exploring this topic on Green Party leadership. Coming up next, we consider the proposed national mental health crisis line. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joey DeGupta. Let's jump into our next topic. The CRTC has announced that Canada will be getting a mental health crisis line. Canadians who need immediate mental health crisis intervention will be able to text or call 988 and obtain counselling in the fall of next year, so 2023. This follows a similar service that was launched this summer in the United States. Michelle, we talked about the American service when it launched. What do you want to explore here? Well, uh, the American service is, is, as ever with these things, the devil's in the details, and the details haven't gotten talked about a whole lot with the American service. And I feel like that might be a bit of the case with the Canadian one, at least at this point, although in fairness, the Canadian details, a lot of them still have yet to emerge. Uh, yes, the 988 hotline went live in the U.S. last month, but it, was only, it, it wasn't fully ready to roll. Um, There was still a lot of work to be done to line up the necessary mental health supports in various states. Uh, There were some sort of telecom infrastructure things to work around. So it launched, but it wasn't, you know, fully up and running. And there was still quite a lot of work to be done with that. In Canada now, at least we have a timeline. Uh, It's been very slow to get off the ground. This was a, a push to institute such a line here that got unanimous political support about a year and a half ago. And only this week did we hear that, yes, okay, the work is underway and it won't really be here until November of 2023. So I find it an interesting concept and notion but because it's such still in such the early planning stage, I thought we could take some time to, um, you know, spitball a few ideas and throw things at the wall and see how Dave Brown and friends envision this 988 hotline taking shape next year. Yeah, I, I think this first question is pretty straightforward and self-explanatory. I think folks by its nature will understand the benefit here. But, Juita, as you think about the benefits of a 988 emergency mental health crisis and suicide prevention line, what are the benefits that stand out to you? Well, the 
first one and the most obvious one is that it's an easy and number for people to remember, especially if they're dealing with a crisis. I think it's also going to be, as you said, very important in uh, suicide prevention. And it's going to be one of those rare options that will be available across Canada, which I think is massively important because mental health supports mm-hmm. are not evenly distributed across this country. And I think the other sort of unanticipated benefit is that even as we have a conversation about 988, it reduces, at least the hope is, it reduces the stigma of reaching out and asking for help and, and reduce some of that stigma around mental health and mental illness and hopefully gets a conversation started. So I would say there's obviously some uh, obvious benefits to 988 itself as an emergency hotline, but the knock-on effects of that would be a national conversation about the importance of providing support for mental health and mental well-being. Yeah, when I think about immediate benefits, it's something that we've had in conversations to, in general, reform in regards to first response, which is yes. let's let let's make sure that professionals are dealing with mental health rather than people who may not have the appropriate training on mental health. And certainly, there's a stopgap that can exist here that says, okay, we're going to try to get you some immediate counseling and then that person can make an evaluation to understand what is the next step here in this moment. Michelle, I want to give you the same opportunity to think about benefits. Building on what you were saying about first responders, I think another really crucial point here is that this one's going to bypass the police. Uh, There's been a lot of controversy about having police attending mental health calls. This has been a very fraught issue. This line will hopefully help sort of mitigate some some of that by not involving the police at the outset and getting mental health people involved much faster. So I think that's a really crucial potential benefit of this. And that's very similar to what's in place in the U.S. The other obvious benefit is kind of what Joita was talking about. Not only is it going to be accessible across the country, I think it's a very equitable solution in that it's it's not going to cost any money to, to access. So it uh, not only covers a lot of geographic territory, but it helps hopefully connect the dots for people with lower incomes who might not be able to afford their own counseling. We shared a story on the show yesterday in regards to some staffing shortages going on with 911 services in British Columbia. So as I think about what's going to happen here in the next year as we develop the details and roll this out. I know staffing shortages has become something of a almost an inane buzzword over the course of the last year and the way it's utilized, but I think it's really important here that we're making sure the service is appropriately staffed from a volume standpoint, but we're also ensuring that the people that are being brought in to do this are adequately trained, which may actually create a knock-on effect in a negative way, which is we already don't have enough therapists. We already don't have enough access for day-to-day mental health support in this country, so I worry about some splitting that may that may occur there. Joita, as you think about this next year, what are some of the priorities, but what are some of the stumbling blocks that you foresee? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's imperative that this line is staffed by trained professionals. In a lot of uh, crisis line situations, um, crisis lines are staffed by volunteers, and I'm all for uh, encouraging volunteerism. Uh, But in a situation like this, when you're dealing with a high level of stress, you're dealing with callers in distress, you're dealing with callers who are potentially suicidal, you do need uh, people with professional training and you do need to have paid employees staffing the line uh, vis-a-vis unpaid volunteers, if for no other reason than to ensure that there's continuity and you're not training new people every six months. Um, But I think that, at least my hope is, that given the timeline around rolling out um, this program, uh, they're talking about launching the program in November 2023. So we've got a little over a year left. My hope is that 
some resources can be diverted towards training uh, professionals um, in the next 12 to 18 months to try and address some of that that splitting that you talked about. Because you're right, there is already a shortage of mental health professionals, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, you name it. We're already very strained in terms of the number of people who are available. So my hope is that this will be a problem that will be addressed early on by increasing capacity for programs, allowing people to enroll, um, you know, targeting specific communities. Uh, I think I mentioned this in relation to our healthcare conversation a few weeks ago, that it's really important to recruit people from communities, hoping that they'll serve those communities once they're trained up. So mm. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of things to, of, to be factored in. The one other thing I'll say in terms of a priority is cultural competency. Um, yes. It's a really important conversation in Canada where uh, not everybody speaks English or French, so we need to ensure we have a multilingual service. We have an indigenous population and other racialized communities that have a lot of intergenerational trauma and who are dealing with the legacy of colonialism. So we really need to think about creating a service that isn't just taking the same template and, and, and applying it across the board, irrespective of who calls. Uh, but is really responsive to the unique histories and challenges faced by Canadians in different walks of life. The last thing I'll say is that moving forward in, in the implementation of the service, one of the priority areas that I see is having a very straight-up conversation about the limitations of a service like this. It's not a substitute for ongoing, serve, ongoing treatment or therapy. It's not a way to... Take, it, it doesn't take away from an urgent and overdue conversation about needing to implement greater therapy and mental health professional and bringing in more mental health professionals on a day-to-day -day basis so that people can have that ongoing support. Calling a crisis line is important, but it's not the same thing as having an ongoing relationship with a therapist or a counselor. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Michelle, just before I hand things back over to you, I do want to point something out here in regards to ensuring that we have trained employees. And this isn't necessarily something that can be solved inside the next 12 months months. But when we think about other first responders, firefighters, police, EMTs, these are certification programs that are occurring mostly at the college level at, in provinces. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we're going to have to develop a national standardization for provincial programs to be staffing these things appropriately, because we can't just be nabbing undergrads from psychology departments. We need to be giving people the appropriate training. Sorry, Michelle, I, I, I know I want to give you a little room here in regards to stumbling blocks and priorities that we may encounter over the course of the next year. <laughs> No, that's a really good point. And, and honestly, we're, we're all on the same page because my big concern also has to do with resources of, on, on the mental health delivery side. Uh, there are some infrastructure issues that the, the CRTC has to sort out before next year, before that can come to pass. So it's possible there are some delays there while some provinces uh, drop 10-digit dialing, excuse me, implement, drop seven-digit dialing and implement 10-digit one as one potential barrier. But my big, big thing is absolutely on not just people who are staffing the line itself. And I'll note that those people are going to have to be able to respond by phone or by text. You can text 988. So that's a whole other method of service delivery that people are going to have to get up to speed on that doesn't really exist for 911, at least as far as I know. Um, but more than even just the immediate crisis line response is the community response, because that's ultimately where the line is going to have to bridge those gaps, connect people with mental health providers. And if there simply aren't mental health providers to be had in the necessary areas, then we have a serious problem and the line is not really fulfilling its mandate. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are going to have to ramp up and enter the system in what really is 
pretty tight timeline if you're looking at it from that perspective. Especially when we're talking about establishing protocols, because if this is bypassing the police, there are still going to be emergency scenarios where police may be required. So what is Mm -hmm. the tripwire for that? What is the protocol when a first responder does actually need to be sent to that situation? Because we have to be be really clear. Mm -hmm. There are moments when a first responder is definitely required and immediately required in these situations. I should point out that we these conversations might be happening. There might already be some no- notions in place around this. We just don't know. The, the yeah. info available, we're having this a really early date for this conversation. The announcement just got made on Wednesday. Maybe some of the 18 months since the political conversation opened up and the push to get this implemented began to really take shape. Um, but you're right. There's there some very, very complex details and, and maybe... Maybe they're in the works. Maybe Canada's hoping to learn a bit from the U.S. implementation. Who knows? But it's hard to yeah. fully assess the picture at this point. So let's just very quickly talk about that delay. I'm going to kind of hold uh, you guys each to sort of 30 to 45 seconds on this. I'll simply say that, as you mentioned, Michelle, it's been over a year since this received uni- unanimous political support. We only got the announcement from the CRTC this past week. I would suggest the sensitivity of this would require some delay, some kind of internal consulting. But I also believe that if we've learned one thing over the course of the last couple of years, the pandemic has very much impacted the wheels of bureaucracy and the wheels of bureaucracy are turning slowly on this. So even if it was something of a priority, I think that just the way in which business has gotten done, certainly with federal institutions, has been very slow in the last couple of years. Joita, a theory on the delay and then last word to Michelle. Yeah, I think it's a lot of it comes down to the pandemic and just how it's gummed up the system a little bit and things have slowed down owing to the pandemic. Plus, I think as we've alluded to in our conversation, it is a very complex um, situation with a number of factors that need to be considered and things that need to be put in place before they can implement it. And honestly, I'd rather they take their time and get it right rather than implement it now and have all kinds of problems um, along the way. Michelle, a theory on some of the delay? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Uh, The CRTC absolutely had to be on board with this. This was not optional. They're the ones who are going to be upholding a lot of the infrastructure piece. So they needed to be ready to weigh in and and participate in this process. So I suspect that was part of the delay. But I will note that unanimous political support does not always necessarily equate to speedy action. And to that, I point to a little piece of legislation called the Accessible Canada Act, Mm. which did have unanimous political support when it was tabled and and passed, uh, but still uh, is not nearly as formed as a lot of people were hoping to see three years in. 2019? July 2019? June 2019? June 2019, yep. Yeah, it's it's been a minute. It's been a minute. There's been a couple elections. There's been a couple elections that have, uh, you know, buried a couple bills on some tables. Uh, guys, Quite. Michelle, I'm, Michelle, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad you brought this topic to us this week after you and I talked about it in one of your Monday hits uh, a few, a few months ago. So I'm really glad we're having this continuity, and I think we will revisit this one again as the implementation continues to roll out. Coming up after the break, we contemplate well, a theory of mine, that people are having trouble sinking their teeth into provincial elections, specifically some enthusiasm around the Quebec election, which is uh, just a few weeks away. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We've got one more topic on deck. The Quebec election 
is underway. Now, I'm not looking to dive into issues at play in the election. Actually, quite the opposite. I want to do something a little more abstract. Now, here's the core question before I hit you with some more preamble. Why do you think people largely have trouble sinking their teeth into a provincial election? I observed this during the Ontario election. Even though there were really big issues at play coming out of the pandemic, it seemed like people at large really didn't care. There wasn't really an enthusiasm. I observed that in the most recent BC election, certainly talking to some friends in Quebec last weekend. Let's call their enthusiasm low. Now, I know my evidence is anecdotal. But I'm curious if you guys have a theory on why provincial politics don't always necessarily caption, capture the imagination of voters at large. Michelle, I want to give you first crack at this because we talked about this over email on Sunday. Yeah, we did. Um, and the Ontario election observation is, is, is very vivid in my mind. But I, I will push back on your notion a little bit and say that while I agree that provincial politics is not grabbing people's interest I'd say that's kind of a unique thing to right now. I have covered past provincial elections and the temperature and the, the vibe felt really different. It does feel incredibly muted right now. It feels like everything's turned down. It feels like there's a lot of apathy out there and just a, a lot of burnout on, on political discussion. Uh, I think a lot of cynicism on what any level of government can do for people in light of all the upheaval that we've been seeing, both economically and on the healthcare system. And that's been across the country. So I think we're in a particularly cynical political moment at the moment. And I think that's probably like that's kind of my theory as to why people are, are tuning out a lot of these elections, even though. The province is responsible for more of the things mm -hmm. that affect your everyday life mm -hmm. than, than stuff that happens at the federal level. And of course, it'll be interesting to see in Ontario, for instance, uh, municipal elections are going to be taking place here in a few months time. That's even closer to home. And I'll be interested to see if that has any kind of different vibe. But my guess is no, because I think people are just kind of done in general at the moment. But that said, I think there could be a resurgence of I, interest in I, kind of thing. I got my first door knock of the municipal election this past week, but I was only wow. wearing I was only wearing underwear, so that that door uh, was not answered. The door was not answered in that moment. Uh, Juita, Michelle pushed back on my premise. I'm curious if you'd like to push back on my premise as well. Oh, sorry, Juita, we've got to let up your mic. Hold on one second. Now we go back to Juita. I I think. Um I think uh, what we're dealing with is just low engagement and low voter turnout in general. Even with federal elections, um, it seems like there's been less interest. And I wonder how much of that can really be uh, uh, can come down to the pandemic and people feeling really fatigued with um, politics, just with life, and a lot of that that COVID fatigue setting in now after two plus years. Um, but like Michelle, I think that a resurgence in um, in provincial elections and in electoral politics in general is likely imminent down the road. Um, I think, though, to your point about provincial elections specifically, um, there's a couple of factors that I think do come into play as to why people may not be paying as much attention as they probably could or should or ought to, given that the province determines things. It has a large part to play in files like housing, healthcare, and education, which obviously has a huge impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. I think a lot of it comes down to our education system. Um, now, I will put the caveat in place that I did not, uh, I did not complete high school in Canada. Uh, but just from what I've heard, from oh, civics is lacking. Civics, yeah, so civics that's a good point. Civics is yeah. lacking, and I think 
in the, as a footnote to that, I don't know how much provincial politics gets taught. And as civics is lacking, then I don't know how Not many people actually, yeah, and I don't know how many people actually uh, understand the division of powers. So for them, the government is the government. And I don't think people are getting into that minutia about who's responsible for what. So I think a lot of this comes down to people just not knowing. And I, at the moment, owing, I think, largely to the pandemic and the fact that we've had several federal elections in the last two, three years, people also not caring. Mm. I, I have a mass media question for you guys. And, and, and to a certain extent, we're all part of the mass media in our own, in our own particular way. Um, I sometimes find the coverage of elections is either too horse racy or agenda E. Person X will be here making an announcement about today. Polls say this. And sometimes I really feel like just explainers on party platforms, although it would be so dry and boring, I think that would actually be really beneficial for people. But Joita, giving you an opportunity here from a mass media perspective, what do you think we could do to better serve populations and maybe gear up some of that enthusiasm? Well, I think uh, part of the problem is that a lot of the mass media, when it's national mass media, uh, they're more focused on federal politics. They don't really have the resources to spend covering provincial politics, um, especially with newsrooms shrinking down and people getting laid off and everything. I think the priority for a, lot, uh, for a news outlet that is national in scope is obvious to cover federal politics to the detriment of covering provincial politics. On the other hand, you know, if you think about uh, local morning shows and uh, you know shows of that um, you know of that nature or local daily newspapers, then they're zoned in on municipal politics. And so mm, you know, in Toronto right now, in the lead up to this municipal election that we're gearing up for in October, you'll have interviews with all the candidates on the local morning show on CBC. You'll get a lot of exposure for municipal politics, and I think sometimes, and this is my theory, I think the. Um, I feel like provincial politics is like the middle child in the family. It kind of gets <laughs> forgotten a little bit because we're so focused on the federal government and we're so focused on municipal politics that other than having like routine check-ins with maybe uh, the premier or the minister of education from time to time or the health minister from time to time, I don't think there's as much coverage of, of provincial election on an elections mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis mm -hmm. or provincial politics on an ongoing yeah. basis. Michelle, we've got about a minute here, and I know you and I before have spent time talking about how much we love a good explainer in a newspaper or on a news site mm -hmm. or on news coverage. So I don't mean to be overly critical of the mass media because I think certainly some of this coverage is there, but give me a minute on what you think mass media could do to perhaps engage the population a little bit and build that enthusiasm. I actually find this really fascinating to hear your perspectives because I'm in a, a weird position where I'm sitting at a media outlet that does cover provincial politics pretty extensively, almost at the expense of municipal politics. Uh, Canadian press tends to gear things towards provincial or national audiences. Um, so for me, political or provincial political coverage is in my face almost all the time. And I, I've been interested. It's been a privilege, honestly, to help cover a number of provincial elections now. But I think the explainer theme is a really interesting one and something that we are trying to lean into a little bit. Sometimes we'll save. If, if there's a daily announcement, rather than writing about the daily announcement, if we don't find it particularly interesting, but we think it's time, let's say, to start uh, focusing a, a piece on promise changes to education, we'll start 
grouping coverage by theme sometimes and exploring a different issue or two every couple of days and diving into it more that way. And I, I hope that kind of explanatory journalism and rather less focus on spot coverage might help move things along. Guys, I really appreciate both your perspectives on this issue and all the issues we covered today. We're out of time, but Michelle McQuig, you have yourself a lovely weekend. Thank you. You same to everybody else. And Joita Gupta, you enjoy your long weekend as well. Thank you very much. You too. That's Joita Gupta, host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, we get the regional news update with Mike Ross. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, September the 2nd, 2022. I'm going to hold my script up to the camera here for a second. I've been telling the joke. Dave's going to get the branding wrong all week as we've made the switch to exclusively AMI-tv. Someone laid a trap for me here because we said anytime that I get the branding wrong, I've got to put some money in the charity jar. There's AMI-audio right in the script waiting to catch me. I'm trying to take money out of my pocket. And, of course, put it in the pocket of a wonderful charity, uh, TBD, kind of like Arrested Development. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely looks ahead to this year's Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF 2022. And Greg David, he's going to help us out with some of this branding that I'm getting wrong all over the place. He's going to talk about AMI-TV's fall season and some of the changes going on around AMI-audio as well. Much afoot at the AMI family. Let's bring in Mike Ross for the regional news update. Thank you, Dave. We'll begin in British Columbia and the cousin of a Manitoba man who was recently killed during an interaction with police in Vancouver says she believes he was seen as just another vulnerable person in a vulnerable part of the city. Samantha Wilson says Chris Amiot died after being shot six times with a beanbag gun and that a public inquest and systemic changes are needed when it comes to police tactics. The province's independent police watchdog is investigating, but Sergeant Steve Addison of the Vancouver Police Department has said a beanbag shotgun was used as an alternative to lethal force and is employed when someone is acting violent, violently rather, or displaying assaultive behavior. Wilson says beanbag guns can't be the first de-escalation technique that they need to be declared firearms or lethal weapons. To the prairies, two men face a total of 26 charges after an Alberta Treasury branch was smashed and robbed early Wednesday morning in Daysland, Alberta. Officers at the nearby Killam Forestburg detachment were called about the break-in at 4.13 a.m. When police officers arrived, the robbers had already fled the scene with an ATM in the back of a pickup truck, leaving the front of the bank destroyed. Officers were able to identify two suspects and arrest them near Bayshaw with the help of a helicopter. Corporal Troy Savinkov says parts of the ATM, significant amounts of money, vehicles and other stolen items have been recovered. Daceland is about 120 kilometers southeast of Edmonton. To Ontario, unions are expressing concern about the province's decision to scrap its mandatory isolation period for COVID-19. 
Ontarians who test positive for COVID-19 no longer have to isolate for five days, but can return to work or school once their fever is gone and other symptoms have been improving for at least 24 hours, though they need to wear a mask for 10 days after symptom onset. Unifor's national president says telling people to go back to work while sick, quote, contravenes common sense and could lead to a greater spread of the virus in workplaces. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario and the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation say they're worried allowing children and educators to return to the classroom while still potentially contagious could cause the virus to spread faster in schools. To Quebec, Liberal leader Dominique Anglade has stops in Gatineau, Quebec today, across the river from Ottawa, which was won in 2018 by the Coalition Avenir Quebec of Premier François de Gaulle. She also has stops planned in Val d'Or, located in a riding also held by the CAQ. Legault, meanwhile, is campaigning today in Lévis, across the river from Quebec City, where star candidate Bernard Drainville is representing the party. Drainville is a former leadership contender for the Parti Québécois and as a PQ minister in 2013 came up with a so-called values charter that called for people who wear religious symbols to be prohibited from working in public institutions. And finally, PQ leader Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon is holding a news conference in Gatineau while Quebec Solidaire spokesman Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois is starting the day on the Gaspé Peninsula. It gives you some sense of Quebec politics when you have a former minister saying, oh, you think Bill 96 is aggressive? I had an even better idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's go into my archives. Yeah. Come on over here and check, it, check out what I used to do. It's like a hipster. It's like, oh, I liked Wolf Parade before they were big. Yeah, hold my beer. Hold my beer. Yeah. Let's go to the Atlantic region. Uh, lastly, Dave, Nova Scotia's Justice Department is committing to the collection of race-based data for police. The province says the aim is to determine if and how racialized communities are disproportionately targeted by law enforcement. The department says it is accepting all the recommendations by a committee established to review ways of gathering race-based information from police. Justice Minister Brad Johns says there is no place for racism in our justice system. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Mike, stay right there because you've also got the big business story of the day. Mike, wrapping up the week with a little bit of good news here. Yeah, my last uh, big business story of the day, and I'm going out with some good news here. Gas prices, <laughs> if you're heading out for the long weekend, expect it to be going down in most parts of the country. The final long weekend expected to be one of the cheapest ones for drivers in quite a while. Gasoline prices have fallen significantly from their summer highs to a national average of $1.61 per liter. The which last is, time, which is still a lot, by the way. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right. It's like, oh, well, this used to be $10. Now it's $9. Oh, wow. Well, it's still, still $9, right? Uh, the last time retail fuel prices were that low was late in February, just before the effects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine began to be felt at the pumps. Uh, gas prices are falling now in tandem with crude oil prices, which are at their lowest levels since January because of high inflation. It's got people cutting back on the amount of driving they're doing. Mm. So, and now there's going to be even less because now summer comes to an end, not as much uh, traveling happening. People will be back on uh, transit as they head back to work after mm -hmm. summer holidays. Mm -hmm. 
et cetera, et cetera. So I would expect that that uh, price of gas will continue to drop in the near future. Mike, you made mention this is your last big business story of the day. We've been doing a lot of goodbyes over the course of the last couple of weeks. The goodbye we're doing for you is not quite necessarily of the same ilk because you'll still be around here and there doing a lot of backfilling for us all over the show. But in terms of Mike Ross as a daily contributor, uh, this is indeed your your last day on the show. Mike, I just wanted to express how wonderful it's been to work with you, both when you were the host of Live from Studio 5 and I was an occasional guest host, an occasional contributor to the launch of this show. Now with Dave Brown, you were an incredible mentor and help in making sure that I understood some of the day-to-day operations of the show and you gave me a lot of feedback and advice on how to make this show more engaging on the fly. You are a professional broadcaster who brings years and years of experience that is so valuable, not just for me, but for the entire team around this company. And just know that even though we're not going to be talking to you every day, your fingerprints and your voice and your mind are all over this show. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I've uh, said many times over the years that my time and and the contribution that I've been able to make to AMI has been by far uh, head and shoulders above anything else that I've done. Uh, I think the most relevant broadcasting I've ever been involved in, and I'm very proud of uh, what I've been able to bring to AMI, to the live elements of uh, AMI as well, You know, making that jump from uh, pre-recorded produced programming to the, the live programming and so much live programming programming rather that we're doing now. Uh, So I'm still part of it. I'll be on the Globe and Mail today every uh, weekday morning, uh, live at 8 a.m. Eastern time. And uh, as you mentioned, from time to time, when uh, you need me, I am here and uh, ready and uh, very happy to uh, backfill any of the positions uh, that I've backfilled uh, in the past and uh, looking forward to uh, continued involvement here and there with now with Dave Brown. But thank you very much, David. I love working with you guys. I, you know, from Andrika, the technical staff, uh, you, of course, uh, it, it's it's a great production, and I look forward to what is coming down the pike for you yeah, guys. exactly. And the surreality is you'll actually be back in this chair uh, before too long. <laughs> it won't even be you that long it. before Mike's back in the mix. So the goodbye is much more of a see you later than necessarily a straight-up goodbye. Yeah. Mike, have an awesome long weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you uh, off the air and on the air or moving forward. Sounds good. Thank you, Dave. That's Mike Ross. He is our news director and one of the readers on the Globe and Mail today. You can find that at 8 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio on the weekdays. Let's bring in Brock Richardson. He has the sports chat. Hey, Brock, lots going on in the world of sports, but uh, let's start with a bit of sad news from the hockey world. Yes. Before I do that, shout out Mike Ross just for all the work that he's done. And I was part of live from studio five as a contributor way before uh, any of this took place. Mike is a constant professional love working with him, And we will be chatting sports in the not too distant future, but just wanted to uh, shout out Mike Ross here, here to that. Uh, um, the sad news of the day, unfortunately is that 20 year old Eli F- Paul Fryman, who was recently announced as captain of the air Centennials of the Greater Ontario Hockey Junior League has died in a preseason tournament this week. Now, the reports say that he died in the middle of a uh, the event. Uh, this is not the first time we've seen something like this. If you recall, Denmark's Christian Eriksson uh, in a similar situation of the Euro Cup uh, collapsed during a game 
uh, last year, the year before, and he had a better outcome, though, and survived. So uh, thoughts and prayers go out to the family of Eli. It's just sad news when you see stuff like this, Dave. Yeah, it's something that it it's unfortunate. It, it's just part of the sports world, and we do see it from time to time. It's just a reminder of the of the stress and strain that we put on a lot of people's bodies to compete at the highest level in these sports. And it's uh, it's one of these things where where these athletes are missed because so many of them are taken away even before they hit their prime. I think about a Corey Stringer, the offensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings, who passed away in the middle of a practice back in the mid two thousands. So unfortunately, it's a story that's just all too common in the world of sports. Yeah, it's uh, it's very sad, but I want to and I for those that don't know, I'm from uh, Kitchener, Ontario, which is just a stone's throw from here. So I wanted to bring that story to the greater audience of Canada just because it's a local story as well. So let's go from a sour story to something you've been doing for us here, which are some fun facts of the day, some stats of the day. You've got one here that I actually saw pop up earlier this week as well that is a tremendous stat of the day from the hockey world. Okay, so you can't play along with me because you've seen it. Sorry, yeah, I I, I follow the memes too, Brock. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so this is cool. So... Out of all of the players drafted between 2008 and 2021, only two players have more career points than Connor McDavid with 667. Who and and the question is who are they? Well, John Tavares with 895 in, uh, and then Steven Stamkos with 972. Like, when you think about that, there's been a lot of good players drafted between that window, Dave. And this is an amazing stat. When you think of those two players are the only two that have more career points than one Connor McDavid. <laughs> With, in both their cases, six and seven more seasons under their belt than Connor McDavid, which is uh, just tremendous <laughs> to think that gap is so small. Although, Brock, I didn't get a chance to dive too deep into this. I would love to know what Stamkos's number was through a similar number of games, because early in his career, he was a point and goal scoring machine. And if certainly between the blood clots, between the broken leg and between some other health issues, he's missed a lot of time. I'm, I'm actually genuinely curious what what his sort of game through game total would have been relative to McDavid, although McDavid clearly is blowing him away. McDavid's the, the best point producing player since Mario Lemieux. I will look that up and bring that to you on Tuesday. <laughs> Love it. Because <laughs> now, now I'm curious, so I have to know. And it's a, it's a, it's a uh, good point. I wish I had thought of that. I would have brought that to you. But if, if I it, were a more gracious host, I would have emailed you my thoughts. So I wouldn't have put you on the spot <laughs> like that. But welcome to the world of dealing with me, Brock. Uh, I've got a stat of the day for you as well. Having to deal with Angels pitcher and hitter Shohei Otani. He leads the team in innings pitched leads the team in strikeouts, and leads the team in home runs. Brock, do you know what year in baseball history the last time a player led their team in home runs, strikeouts, and innings pitched? I don't know exactly, but if I was to guess, I would say maybe 70s. 1876. So you were right. It was in the seventies, but it was in 1876 (laughs) that a player for the Louisville Grays, 
obviously no longer a no longer a major league baseball team i did that his name is escaping me right now but he played second base and pitcher for the louisville grays in 1876 so there's a stat of the day for you as well uh brock you wanted to make mention of some big dollars that went flying around in the football yesterday the denver broncos and their new ownership locking up their quarterback yes uh if we could only have a quarter of this money i'd be happy uh <laughs> Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos reach a five-year extension totaling, wait for it, $245 million. Uh, Russell Wilson is a one-time Super Bowl champion in 2014. I like Russell Wilson. I like the edge that he gives you. Sometimes he can go a little bit over that edge, but he gives you that real edge of a player and he just knows how to play football i love watching him um it's all good but man do i wish i could have some of his dollars <laughs> yeah you said a quarter i would settle for a tenth set me up with a <laughs> clean 25 milli i'd be a happy man brock uh he is a really good quarterback and of course denver made that trade this offseason to bring him in from seattle as seattle is going through a rebuilding and denver wants to compete expectations really high for this broncos team heading into this season and they're in a tough tough division vegas is a decent team kansas city is a good team the los angeles Chargers are on the upswing so this is one of those moments where the expectations are really really high in denver it's going to be a tough slog though but this is certainly a way to say hey we're the wall we're the wall family we own walmarts and now we own the broncos and we're going to give russell wilson some of that quiche hey. i w- i will love to watch denver and kansas city i mean i i love to watch Kansas City play football anyways, but those two matchups will be so, so tasty, mm-hmm. and we will we will talk about it all through the football season. But. The, the AFC West is loaded with rivalries. All four of those teams significantly dislike each other. Brock, yesterday I tried to get you up for a college football game on TSN2 that started Ooh. at 7 p.m. Eastern time between Pittsburgh and West Virginia. I'm curious, did you watch any, and did the expectations that I lay out for you meet those expectations? Did I watch it? Absolutely. Uh, it was one of the greatest, and, and again, this is coming from a guy who's only watched very little foot, uh, college football games, but that was one of the best football games I've seen in all of football, just back and forth. There was a bit of everything. There was block punts. There was deep runs there was you know sloppy play bad penalties <laughs> just everything every absolutely everything in that game it was fantastic i think the crowd totally played a factor in that game uh i i was just blown away by college football mm-hmm. just being such a um desired thing in the states and, and it's, it was so good to watch and i look forward to watching more uh, throughout the season, but man, I, I you you and I were talking about the uh, game being a little bit maybe underwhelming itself, but man, that game turned out to be really really good, even considering the rivalry. Yeah, Pittsburgh scoring 14 points in the last five minutes of the game to win 38-31 over their vaunted rival West Virginia. West Virginia 
looked like they'd completed a pass on the one yard line with 10 seconds left. It was ruled incomplete on a fourth down. It was a phenomenal game and college football gets going again tonight and tomorrow. And I will be eating lots of mac and cheese and chili to celebrate. Brock, you have yourself a wonderful weekend. We'll catch up with you on Tuesday. You as well. That is Brock Richardson. He is the host of the neutral zone. We'll talk a little bit about some of the new air times with neutral zone because it no longer airs at Fridays at 4 p.m. Eastern time on our new clock. It's going to be airing on Tuesdays. So we'll make sure to chat with Brock on Tuesday about the brand new episode coming your way. Let's head over to Eliza Rocco, who has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. First up is Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where it's sunny this morning, and then a mix of sun and cloud with showers beginning later this morning and ending late this afternoon. The high is 20 degrees. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's sunny with a high of 21. And in St. John's, it's sunny with another high of 21. And in Quebec City, it is sunny as well, with a high of 22 degrees. Here in Toronto, it's mainly sunny, with a high of 28 degrees. And in Sault Ste. Marie, it's a mix of sun and cloud, which will clear early this afternoon. The high is 27 degrees. And in Brandon, Manitoba, it's sunny, with a high of 23 degrees. In Regina, it's sunny with a high of 24 degrees. And in Lethbridge, it's sunny with a high of 34 degrees and a heat warning in effect. Oh man, it's hot been, it's been hot in Alberta for a couple days straight <laughs> oh, now. Oh yeah. And in Red Deer, Alberta, it is also sunny with a high of 30 degrees with a heat warning in effect as well. Yesterday we teased them for their 25 degree heat warning. 30, we'll let you know. I'm sorry, warning. I'm sorry, Red Deer, I take yeah. it back. <laughs> in Whitehorse, it's there are periods of rain ending near noon, then it will be cloudy for the rest of the day. The high is, 20, is 14 degrees. In Kelowna, BC, it's sunny with a high of 35 degrees. And in Vancouver, it is sunny with a high of 26 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Eliza. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the hour for the entertainment report. We've got some Dolly Parton talk to do, so it's fun. We had some Harry Styles and One Direction talk yesterday in honor of Grace. And uh, today we'll do some Dolly Parton talk in honor of Sam Robinson who uh, we still miss. Hope he's doing well down there in Beantown. But coming up next, Michael McNeely looks ahead to this year's Toronto International Film Festival. It's TIFF 2022 on Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Friday edition of AMI at the Movies, our third edition of AMI at the Movies this week. We've had Kim Thistle on Monday. We had Amy Amanti yesterday. 
and we bring in Michael McNeely today. And Michael is kicking off his preview of the 2022 Toronto International Film Festival, which begins on September the 8th and runs till the 18th. And Michael is here from Kingston, Ontario. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm well. Always excited to talk about TIFF. And you want to highlight a couple of films that caught your attention from the Canadian lineup that have a similar focus. So what is the connecting theme that caught your attention? Well, at first I thought it was immigration, as do do. So I'm going to address that as we talk about the three different films. But I think ultimately all three films take place in the Toronto area. So I just wanted to bring a little bit of my... Manuel, uh, town pride here. There we go. A little bit of love for the six. The first movie is by Mongrel Media, and it's a very straightforward title. It's called I Like Movies. <laughs> so what, what are you hoping for with this film? Well, I think this film looks really fun. I think it's the story about um, a young man who wishes to go to film school in the United States. He's arguing with his mom about that. He doesn't know if he can afford it. But he gets a job working at Sequels, which is a, a fictional uh, video store in Burlington, Ontario. So I didn't lie. This film is in Burlington, not Toronto, but still, same difference. Um, and I think it's just... It's just fascinating to see a coming-of-age film in Ontario and with somebody who's a film nerd, a film geek, who loves working at the video store. Sticking with Mongrel Media, the next title that you wanted to highlight was So Much tender t- Tenderness. Why did this one draw you in? Well, this one is the story of an environmental lawyer who is fleeing her country of Colombia. Um... And I think it's very important to recognize that there are human rights lawyers and environmental lawyers that risk their lives on a day-to-day basis, standing up and blowing the whistle on many, uh, many things that are wrong in the world. And in fact, there are many environmental activists that have had to flee their home countries, partly because they've witnessed corruption and uh, other sorts of wrongdoing. In terms of, um, you know, the fossil fuels exploiting the environment or denying climate change, those are the those are the things that they're calling out, and that's what ultimately puts them in danger. So I'm hoping that this film will shine a light on that and will show one of the experiences of somebody who's trying to do the right thing but is also risking her life to do that. How will the style of this film attempt to encapsulate the refugee experience? So I've read the description and it says that we're not going to say Columbia. We're going to just listen. We're going to hear it. We're going to, we're going to have its um, spirit manifest in the film. So she's in Canada right now, of course. So probably due to PTSD and other factors, so it's going to be thinking about her home country, and that's how we're going to experience it through, through what, what is happening to her. So I think that's very much a, a good representation of what it's like to be a refugee, because you, you leave a place, but it never quite leaves you. What is a crucial accessibility issue in this film that you wanted to mention? According to the film description, the main character does not speak English, 
So that means that she will be speaking um, a different language that will be subtitled, but ultimately the question is whether or not the English language will be subtitled. Sometimes when films have multiple languages, they do not end up subtitling the English language, which of course makes it inaccessible. So I hope that this multilingual film will be accessible to all. The last film that caught your attention is Elevation Pictures Brothers. What happens in this story? This this book, um, so this this film is based on a book of the same name, and I've started reading it. So to get an understanding of the story, ultimately it's the story of um, two brothers who are growing up in 1980s and 1990s, um, Scarborough. And I think Scarborough is definitely on the map when it comes to films because we had the great Scarborough last year active, which you can watch now on Crave. So this will be another film that represents the multicultural heritage of Scarborough as well as the dangers that face many young people who live in Scarborough, especially in the parks area where the film takes place, the park area. So, um, and this story is really about how a younger brother mourns the loss of his older brother and how he tries to move on with his family after a senseless tragedy. Is there something you're expecting to experience with this film? I think I am just excited to see how Scarborough is represented because it's an area of it's an area of the GTA that I don't get to go to very often. I know that there are parts of it that are beautiful, but there are also parts of it that are very much troubled and unsafe for many. So I'm just looking forward to the representation of it on the big screen. I'm I'm excited for all these films to represent Canada on the big screen. Because a lot of times we have films that pretend that Canadian locations or other locations, you know, like Los Angeles or Chicago or whatever. But everybody knows that they're Canadian cities. We just don't we just don't get the recognition that we deserve. And so finally we're starting to say that these characters are in Toronto, these characters are from Toronto, these characters are living in Toronto, and there's nothing wrong with that, because that's that's the reality of many of us. I'm sure the rest of the country is thrilled to hear more stories about Toronto. Uh, Michael, we started talking about theme. Let's end on theme. What is the key theme of Brothers? The key theme of Brothers, I think, is ultimately, um, and you could also maybe say that it's a theme for so much tenderness as well, is that the memories, memories are not necessarily in the past. Memories influence our present and future. So, in Brothers, there's, an, there's a scene where the younger brother is climbing a telephone pool, and so he needs to remember what his older brother told him about avoiding the different obstacles on the path. And I think that's that's true for all of us that we use our memories to try and remind us of what we should be doing now and how we can stay out of danger. Now, Dave, um, I would like to just uh, end this segment with another comment, if I may. Please. I've been trying to get more information on accessibility active, but right now it doesn't seem like anything is publicly available. 
Unfortunately, this seems to be the continuation of a pattern that we've been having the last um, the last few months, sorry, the last few years. One of the main issues that I would like to shine a spotlight on is that tickets are selling out of movies, but we don't know the accessibility features of those movies. So, for example, we say that brothers are selling out right now. It's selling like hotcakes. I don't know if I can go see it because it's not. I don't know if it's captioned or not. So ultimately, I'm kind of stuck when I when it comes to movies that I'm interested in seeing. So I'm going to try and raise these uh, concerns to the TIFF authorities, and hopefully, something can be done. But it doesn't seem like people with disabilities are given the the respect that they deserve at this time. Well, let's keep a close spotlight on that one as we continue to shine a light on maybe some of the inaccessibilities that continue to exist in the industry. No doubt about that one. Michael, next time we talk, TIFF will be underway. So uh, looking forward to catching up with you again next week. I also just want to mention that it's my birthday on September 8th. This is the first day of TIFF. So if you, you know, want to send me a little something, just uh, <laughs> go ahead. You know, popcorn's always nice. <laughs> Popcorn and a soda, never a bad birthday present at all. Well, happy birthday in advance to a Michael McNeely. That's Michael McNeely with a preview of this year's Toronto International Film Festival, which starts on September the 8th and runs until the 18th. For more information, you can visit tiff.net, T-I-F-F dot Coming up after the break, we'll find out what's going on in the world of social media. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring in Eliza Rocco with the Entertainment Report. Eliza, some exciting news for fans of Dolly Parton. Oh, yes, Dave. And I am one of those fans. (laughs) So am I. (laughs) So I am excited to announce that Dolly Parton, the singer, the actress, the author that we all know and love, has announced Pharmaceut- the lo- pharmaceutical investor, uh, yeah. philanthropist, <laughs> everything, all of the above. Uh, she has announced the launch of Doggy Parton. <laughs> Doggy Parton. Great name. Great name. Just have to say that. So obviously, as the name can kind of tell you, this is a line of dog apparel and accessories. Uh, and Dolly says her source of inspiration for the Do- Doggy Parton line was her the name of her first album, Puppy Love. Aww. Right? So cute. And she says six decades after that album release, her love for pets is stronger than ever. Um, this line will feature shirts, dresses, squeaky toys, and the best thing ever... A huge blonde pet wig. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) As someone with two cats, one of whom is, I would say, the size of a a small, small dog, I might have to purchase some of these items. (laughs) Um, However, to do that, um, currently the products are only available on the Doggy Parton site and on Amazon in the U.S. Um, I'm sure it will come to Canada eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean... 
for the people that really need these things, which might be me, um, you can order it from Amazon to the U.S. It just might be a, a tad expensive. Or, or the other option you have, I mean, for any Canadian who lives close to the U.S. border, which is, what, like 80% of the population or something like that, you, of course, can get one of those boxes in the cross-border states. There used to be uh, there used to be one right across uh, in upstate New York from, uh, from Ottawa where we used to get stuff shipped to all the time, which was mm. great when you can cross the border in a car, which you could for many, many years, uh, and you can once again it's very convenient to send some of your american shippings there and you pay a little duty at the border do a little american shopping at a grocery store get cheap cheese and away you go i did not know about that i might have to i might have to take advantage I, of that i don't know if i want to shout out the name of the company specifically but one of the major shipping companies offer those services specifically mm. but uh it's certainly in ogdensburg they did in ogdensburg new york but i'm sure there's a similar company in buffalo that uh, offers some kind of service for canadians on that front so we can talk about that after the Very show interesting but okay. I, <laughs> I do have a dolly parton follow-up question for you yes Eliza. yes she has her own theme park in tennessee dollywood would you ever go I would love nothing more, Dave. I love theme parks. Yeah. And I okay. love Dolly Parton. So I don't know how it could go wrong. I don't know how it wouldn't be the best place on earth. I would for sure want to go. I'm not a huge theme park and crowd people, but I think that if I timed it right to avoid the Tennessee hot summer, maybe a little fall trip mm. down to the Nashville area or a spring trip to the Nashville area, I think that could be really fun and oh. really nice. A little AMI trip, perhaps? <gasps> Broadcasting live from Dollywood? <laughs> live reporting? I, I don't know. That would be the best. That let's, would be the best thing ever. Let's get on the horn with uh, Paula, Deneen, and Karen I and hook that one okay. up. That seems like a great idea. <laughs> uh, do you want to hear a Dolly Parton joke before I say goodbye to you for the week, Eliza? Absolutely. So gas prices are so high that Dolly Parton and Jolene are carpooling together. Oh, my God. <laughs> before we go, Dave, I just have a, a little blurb of some other Dolly Parton news for you. Um, so not only is she doing this doggy part in line, which keeps her very busy, she's also busy in other respects. She has a new re-recorded song of hers, um, 9 to 5, the, my favorite mm -hmm. Dolly Parton mm -hmm. song. So she has new re-recorded -re version of that with Kelly Clarkson. Oh, so that will right. be that will be hitting the waves on September 9th. All right. So the we'll have to take a listen. Seven days next Friday. And on top of that, she's also releasing a new documentary called Still Working 9 to 5 about her, her 9 to 5 movie that was released in 1980. It's about the... Um, the inequality of uh, in a workplace for women. Uh, Michael McNeely, our entertainment critic, talked about that a couple of weeks ago in one of his segments. Ah. So, uh, so we'll be keeping a close eye on that one because I would love to talk about that more once that actually drops. I'd love to watch it and see what oh, uh, see what they have to say. Eliza, thank you for this. Thank you. That's Eliza Rocco with your entertainment report. Let's find out what's trending on social media with Nazreen Abdelmajid. So, Nazreen, what's cracking out there on social media? Hi, Dave. One of Canada's top trends is hashtag arrive can. And uh, according to CBC, many Americans still aren't coming to Canada, I mean, as much as before. And we're wondering if the arrive can app has something to do with it. Now, the Niagara Falls mayor says that bookings are down by 35% comparing to the summer of 2019. Uh, largely due to the lack of American tourists. So that's a that's a big amount. Pierce told CBC News that the ArriveCan app is a big deterrent for American road travelers. They're calling on the federal government to scrap the app or at least make it 
optional. I don't know how it would work as optional. Yeah, you but either you either, you either scrap it yeah. or you keep it. You can't do uh, the optional road. They keep saying optional, but I don't think that would even work. Um, but Americans say it's easier to go to Europe than come to Canada. So if you don't know what ArriveCan is, uh, travelers must use it to submit their vaccination information within 72 hours before their arrival back to Canada or their arrival in Canada. So the app has already had bad press in Canada where some travelers have complained about its inconvenience, about their glitches, about how it's not user-friendly to seniors. It's not accessible, Dave. I mean, I, I've tried using it. I don't think it's accessible at all. Uh, so I always let my sister go use it and deal with that situation because I've just, I, I don't think it's user-friendly. Um, so Pierce says several American customers have contacted her company to cancel their bookings because they've learned at the border that they don't like to use ArriveCan or got overwhelmed when they're, they were trying to download it or use it and then just bailed. So uh, what do you think? H how would you, would you wait until it eases up with ArriveCan or would you still want to travel? Because I've used ArriveCan in the past. Um, the first time I used it, when I went to California, it was a challenge. It was such a challenge for me. We we got, uh, we filled it up, We but on our way back, they asked us the same questions over and over. The app glitched in the airport, so we had a lot of issues, and it was a, it was a big delay there. The second time I used it, which was a couple of weeks ago, it was easy. It was super easy. So I don't know, I, I it just... It's inconvenient sometimes, but I'm wondering, would you use it? Inconvenience is not a reason to scrap public policy. I know we're entering some some uh, controversial territory here. We already talked about vaccines on the show, so let's go for the difecta, the duofecta, yes. and talk about ArriveCan too. Why not? Just to tick people off who think that COVID-19 is over when it obviously is not over as it's we not. continue to hover around 5,000 yeah. hospitalizations actively in the country and hundreds of people dying every week of COVID-19. We can discuss whether or not any kind of tracking app is really a useful concept at cross-border points when a, mm -hmm. largely a lot of provincial regulations have gone by the wayside. But I'll tell you, the people who are largely criticizing the ArriveCan app now were the people in March 2020 screaming that we should close the borders. So I would just suggest to anyone, inconvenience is part of life. That's part mm -hmm. of public policy. So... That I get. Now, in regards to the usability, the glitchiness, and the accessibility, that's 100% on the government to get fixed and get right, and there's no disputing that. So yeah. I support the notion of the app. I 100% reject this. Uh, I 100% reject and denounce the, the app not being accessible and usable. That's a huge problem because if yeah. you want this to work, it's got to be usable. Nazreen, we're going to run out of time, so i got to say goodbye, but have a great day. You too. Enjoy the long weekend. Nazreen Abdel-Majid telling you what's trending heading into the long weekend. The gang from Kelly and Company are hitting the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time today. It's Friday, which means that Ryan Huey does a little bit of book talk. The chatty bookshelf. He'll talk about the exploding market of audiobooks in Canada. Coming up after the break, it's Greg David. He's going to tell you all about the brand new AMI-TV season with a preview. And we'll also talk a little bit about some of the changes at AMI-audio. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. There is no better way to head into a long weekend than catching up with AMI communication specialist, Greg David. Hey, good morning, Greg. Good morning. How are you doing, Dave? I'm well. Always excited to wander into a three-day weekend where college football will be front and center in my life. But Greg, if people aren't into college football, we understand it's not everybody. They don't like the exploitation of America's youth. They may be interested in what's coming down the pipeline on AMI-tv because as I've been talking about a little bit the last couple days on the show, we're shaking things up. We're like a martini around AMI, and we've got some really interesting things going on. And Greg, you're here to offer up a bit of a preview for the TV lineup as well as for some changes around audio. So let's start with something that I think uh, a lot of us could use. It's a brand new series based around fitness called Healthy at Home, hosted by Bobby Jansen. Yeah, uh, Bobby Jansen, she is a fitness instructor, and the production company is Honeycut Studios, and they're the same folks behind the show, hashtag I got this, that we've been broadcasting for three seasons. But back to Bobby. So Bobby, in this fitness show, she's going to guide viewers through a home workout that tones and strengthens for everyday living. Uh, Bobby is a mother, a grandmother. She's got a sleeve of tattoos, and she's also a member of the blind and partially sighted community. And uh, she's going to give step-by-step detailed instruction, and she's going to focus focus often on muscle groups that are overused if you're a white cane user or a guide dog oh interesting yeah so uh easy uh 20 minute uh, 30 minute episodes you can do something in the comfort of your own home um every week with bobby greg we're showing some calisthenics on screen right now some ab crunches and some arm stretches and some delt raises but i'm curious what what the typical kind of workout bobby may take a viewer through might be yeah, so great question. So it is it is a lot of uh, the full body kind of workout. She focuses on a certain part of your body, a certain muscle section in every episode. There are 14 episodes of Healthy at Home, so that's a lot of body parts and muscle groups to work mm-hmm. on. But, um, you know, there's specifically one coming up for a workout for the forearm, forearms and wrists, which is important for white cane users and guide dog handlers, like I said. And also there's a, another one coming up that targets arms, shoulders, hips, and the glutes to help with mobility and keep Keep you strong from head to toe. Other episodes include the, um, you know, abs, working on the abs, which I know, Dave, neither of us need to work on because we've got great abs. Um, and then just kind of full body workouts as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Greg, did you find during the pandemic you found yourself doing a little more working out at home? I think I spent my life savings on dumbbells and resistance bands. No, I didn't spend any money on workout equipment. I spent it all on food. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're just carving up. You're carving up for when the fitness for when the fitness comes yeah. for you. I get it. Yeah. Uh, what What are the uh, What are the air dates? The debut dates for uh, for uh, for fitness at home. Sure. So Healthy at Home debuts on Wednesday, September the 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern on AMI-tv. Again, that's Wednesday, September the 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Of course, you can check it out after and anytime on AMI.ca and the AMI-tv app. Yeah, that'll be super useful in terms of the on-demand if people want to establish a routine for themselves. It'll be some great rewatchability there, having someone walk you through some of those workouts. That's a great, great idea. Glad to see we're bringing that one to the airwaves. Greg, there's never any shortage of double tap conversation on this show but double tap tv is coming back for season five it's crazy the five uh, five seasons under their belts um you know mark aflalo and steven scott do wonderful work and their you know technology is constantly changing so there's always stuff to talk about so yeah they're back on season five on tuesday september the 13th at 8 p.m eastern on ami tv maybe just give us a bit of a taste of a couple topics that they've uh, suggested that they may be covering this this fall 
Yeah, so I can give you a peek into the first two episodes, actually. They're going to be looking in the first episode. Stephen and Mark are going to look at Microsoft's new inclusive tech lab and get a virtual tour of that tech lab. And then in the second episode, it's all about keyboards. Uh, Stephen and Mark are going to review some of the latest keyboards to be released, uh, as well as discussing what people are considering when they buy a new keyboard. And does the sound that the keys make make a big difference? So just a, a tease into, into season five of Double Tap TV, which kicks off Tuesday, September the 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern on AMI-tv. And again, check it out on the website and on the app. What do you think, Greg? I'm not, I'm not too particular about the sound my keyboard makes, but I did buy one of those backlit keyboards during the pandemic that has a little bit of light on the keys so I can read mm-hmm. it easily, more easily during the dark. What about you? What are your keyboard preferences? Yeah, I like the backlit. Um, I get frustrated if I'm working in kind of a dim room and I can't see the backlight. But the thing that bugs me the most is I wish that people using their phones would stop with the clicking of the keyboard on their iPhone because that's really annoying when someone is typing. Say a loved one in bed next to you while you're trying to sleep and they're <laughs> typing and all you can hear is the clicking. Wait, is that just me? Am I going to be in trouble when I get off the air? I think we just found our new segment on Now with Dave Brown, <laughs> Airing Dirty Laundry with Greg David. Uh, Greg, let's uh, jump over to the audio side. Of course, now with Dave Brown no longer on broadcasting live on AMI-audio, but we're still part of the AMI-audio family. We're still loving the work that happens over there. And there's some big shakeups going on in regards to the weekly lineup. So give me a bit of a rundown on what listeners can expect generally during the week. Yeah, sure. So Andy Frank has alluded to this in some of the promos that you've heard on AMI-audio. Just kind of outloaded, out, out, wow outlining the new eight-hour wheel on AMI-audio. So some things haven't changed, but some uh, but some have. So uh, weekday mornings, you start off your day at 8 a.m. Eastern with the Globe and Mail today with Mike Ross and Corinne Van Dusen reaching, uh, reading the latest headlines from the Globe and Mail uh, newspaper. And then at 9 a.m., it's Matt Spears and McLean's Magazine. It's live reads of Matt Spears reading uh, st- selected stories from McLean's. And then the Guardian Daily, which is a new show on AMI-audio at 10 a.m. Eastern. Hannah and Laura are the hosts of that show. I was just listening to it this morning, and they read uh, some of the latest stories from the Guardian newspaper, which is based out of the UK. So we're getting a bit of a UK flavor. And then we've got Podcast Roundup, which is a highlight of podcasts uh, weekdays at 11 with Jacob and Nizreen, just letting you know what's going on in the podcast world on AMI, and there is a ton. And then on Tuesdays at 11, when the podcast roundup isn't airing, it's the neutral zone with Brock Richardson and his team. So Tuesdays at 11 to find out about sport and parasport. And then some of the biggest news is that people wanted more double tap and we're giving it to them. So Monday to Friday at noon Eastern, as well as Saturdays at noon, Stephen Scott, Sean Priest and Marco Flalo are doing live new podcasts of double tap six days a week at noon. Right on. Uh, Greg, let's skip past a couple of the new podcasts because we've actually promoted them a bunch on the show. But there's something about the way we're executing some podcasts, which is really neat, which is a shift towards YouTube. Elaborate a little bit on why we made that expansion to the YouTube platform. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a great question. Um, the The short answer is it's discoverability. Uh, YouTube is a place where lots of people go to discover podcasts, new podcasts in particular, and so we're doing it for discoverability, but we also wanted to add the visual angle to it. So if you're tuning into podcasts like Tripping on Air, Raising Kindness with Becky Zur, uh, Blind Golf Canada, Sean on the Shed, The Pulse or Low Vision Moments, you're going to get the visual as well. All the hosts have been sent cameras so that people can check it out, and if you're a 
member of the deaf and hard of hearing community, there are transcripts there that you can follow along with. You can either download them or you can just watch along as the transcripts play out during the podcast. So those are the big reasons why we're on YouTube. It's a new platform and we need to be on it. Joita is literally filming an episode of The Pulse Down the Hall right now, which is super, super cool. I'm going to go bother them and try to interfere in the filming as soon as we're off the air, which, by the way, is in about a minute and 30 seconds. So, Greg, I need you to tell me where people can find more information about all the subjects we just uh, shared, because that's a lot of info for someone to be scrambling down and writing on a piece of paper. It is, especially on a holiday weekend. Go to ami.ca, head over, uh, click on the watch tab to get all the information about the TV shows that we just spoke about, and hit the listen tab if you want to find out about the audio shows and podcasts we just talked about. Greg, we're so appreciative for your insight on this. All the best to you on the long weekend in Quebec, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Dave. That's Greg David. He's a communications specialist for AMI. I want to... uh do something a little different for you guys today. Normally we'd play a produced credit role, but with so many changes on the show right now, it's just easier for me to read off the role. So big thanks to our news director, Mike Ross, our social media reporter, Nazreen Abdel-Majid, our sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Technical producers this week were Eliza Rocco and Grace Scofield. Our switcher is Daniel Penamondo. Our TV technical producer is Bruce McClarion. You guys have no idea how much work Bruce does behind the scenes. Speaking of people doing amazing work behind the scenes, our senior producer is Andrika Delanerol. We would fall on our face without her. We'd also fall on our faces without Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones. We get significant technical support from Leanne Brown and Raymond Burkus. And I want to give our managed team a shout out. Paula Deneen, Kara Denai, Kyle Harper, and John Melville. Until Tuesday, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.